You've got the, the Clovis being the fluted points, Folsom being the deeper fluted points, and then and then Plano being these these unfluted points. So like the uh, like Jethro Tall without Ian Anderson, basically. <laughs> the uh... I, so the, the listener can't see that Ken just checked his notes for that joke. I'm just going <laughs> to put yeah, yeah, him yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick and Ken Bullyoke. Well, welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick, joining you from New Hampshire today. And uh, I'm joined, as always, by Ken Holyoke, who is in Lethbridge, Alberta. How are you, Ken? Not too bad. We're international tonight. We are international tonight. And uh, in fact, that that brings me to our first uh, order of housekeeping business, which is that we still do not have a new name for this podcast, which means that the prize has rolled over. And in fact, much like uh, Mega Millions, we've upped the ante on this. So I'm it's joining It's an iterative you. jackpot. It is an iterative jackpot. Um, are we allowed to say that and still maintain the non-explicit um, rating on, on this program? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, anyway, the iterative jackpot uh, this week is that because I'm joining you from Manchester, New Hampshire which listeners will have to regard as a bit of foreshadowing for next week when we talk about the Neville site in the Atlantic Slope tradition. I'm about a kilometer uh, or a kilometer and a half, maybe, from where the bridge abutment that blasted out the Neville site now sits. And so the Neville site is one thing that Manchester, New Hampshire is known for. Uh, But Ken, do you know what food was invented in Manchester, New Hampshire? I don't. The chicken tender. (laughs) No way. Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, the Puritan back room, which is a a, a well-regarded and I have to say quite excellent uh, restaurant and ice cream parlor here in New Hampshire, invented the chicken tender. And so- Just just a sec. Did you say the Puritan back room? That's what it's called, yeah. Speaking of the explicit rating we've just sacrificed. <laughs> what goes on in a Puritan back room? Well, it's 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 essentially it's a large um, family restaurant uh, run by a Greek family for a very long time. So it's sort of a uh, if a Greek diner uh, went uh, and and became very similar to a like a friendlies. I don't know if you were, you were ever in a friendlies in New England. Yeah. Um, you know, but but it's it's a little it went a little bit more uh, corporate. Like Smitty's or Denny's for our Canadian uh, listeners. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, but but with a huge lofted ceiling and uh, and a takeout window and the, the food is pretty good, actually. And, and the, the tendies are delicious. Um, but so anyway, if if someone comes up with the winning name this week, what we're going to offer uh, is that you get the we're calling this the New England archaeology tour package oh. and the way this works um, you get to join uh, me Ken will fly in for this and we will get uh, the complete set of chicken tenders that means that you'll get the the spicy the traditional and the ranch at the Puritan back room 
Subsequent to that, we will go to where the bridge abutment sits on top of the Neville site. We will climb over the no trespassing sign. I'm sure I've never done this before. We will dodge the heroin needles that now litter the site. And then we will observe the site. But we'll do this for the full New England experience um, with an, while clutching extra large Dunkin' Donuts iced coffees. So this is this is the this is what we've got. So send those in as always. And and Ken, what's our email address again? Uh, New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. It's still fantastic that that wasn't taken. Yeah, it is. It is very surprising. So we'll call this one maybe the. Uh, um, an evening on the Merrimack. Oh, that's a great name. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Merrimack River. It's uh, it's just as lovely as it sounds, just as merry, and uh, and it's really everything you could possibly desire in archaeotourism down here in southern New England. <clears throat> um, we're sponsored this week, as always, by the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick. They can be visited at APANB. .ca. And I was actually uh, talking to Trevor Dow this morning. and President uh, of the APNB. He is. He's not just a handsome man. He's a powerful man. And uh, and Trevor, he, he, he said, he gave, you know, that I appreciate the read you gave last time, but I'm concerned that you just don't have that, that Canadian voice, that Canadian charisma. So maybe you could let Ken do it. And I said, no, no, Trevor. No one. I take a backseat to absolutely no one in my love for the APNB. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to just insert an aspirated yes at some point in a subsequent podcast. And that aspirated yes will be fully paid for by the APNB. And all of our listeners will know that. Ken and I realized that we made a, 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 a slight error in the last podcast. And so this segment we're calling Hakuna Errata. And, and this will uh, be a recurring segment too. Uh, to, we're, we're a fact-based podcast. Um, and uh, and we're, we're not above, uh, you know, calling out ourselves for uh, when, we, uh, when we mix up the facts. That's exactly right. And so um, we were, my understanding is uh, several G's off in a in a, a factoid we shared with the listeners. Uh, yeah. Several G's incidentally being the amount it costs to get a sponsorship yeah. on this podcast. 13 G's actually. So uh, Canada, uh, in the last podcast, we were talking about federal heritage legislation. And I, I misspoke and said that Canada was the only G20 nation without uh, federal heritage legislation. We are actually the only G, we are the G7 the only G7 nation without uh, uh, federal heritage legislation. So we're 13 Gs off. Um, and I'm not sure uh, the composition of those 13 Gs, uh, uh, but that's, that's yeah, that's the kind of the target for our uh, fundraising appeal right now, isn't it? I think that's exactly the target. Um, I think with 13 Gs, we would, we would, we would have uh, matching fleece vests at, at this year's CAA meeting. <laughs> if one can only hope. Yeah, to say nothing of the lapel pins that we would undoubtedly have. What we're going to talk about this fortnight is Paleo Indians. And so these are um, the 
indigenous inhabitants of New Brunswick between about 13,000 and 9,000 years ago. And I think maybe a good place to start with our discussion is just with the term Paleo-Indian, which is going to sit gratingly on the listeners' ears, and it's going to sit gratingly with us when we say it. And so what I'm going to do is begin by saying why I still use the term Paleo-Indian, and then Ken can chime in with why he does or does not. And so the reason that I'm still using this term is that even though uh, the the second half of that word is one that we don't use to describe indigenous people anymore because it refers to an error on the part of Columbus, there's this challenge in that that term achieved real acceptance on a continental scale. And so that term refers to collectively the first uh, indigenous inhabitants of the Americas. And so you can think, well, there would be all sorts of really good alternative terms for that. Um, but the problem is that terms like paleo and paleo-American have both been kind of co-opted by these really like fringy groups that are very into this idea that, you know, Europeans came over the Atlantic and colonized North America or other uh, much actually more conspiratorial ideas than that about the first people in North America. And so as a result, paleo-Indian remains the kind of widespread term across North America and we hope that despite it obviously seeming dated, that what it does is it emphasizes continuity across the whole continent. And so that all of these different um, places are really linked by this very impressive cultural phenomenon that is ancestral to the subsequent um, indigenous groups in North America. What is your take on all of this, Ken? So... Basically, the way you described it is sort of my, my thinking as well. And, that, and, and I think there's a couple things, too. So first of all, the, to the listener, like we have the word spelled out in front of us. But um, uh, when we talk about Paleo-Indians in North America, we, it's capital P-A-L-A-E-O-I-N-D-I-A-N-S. And so there's a couple things there. First is that instead of making it um, Paleo with a dash Indian, um, uh, you avoid the connotation of capitalizing Indian um, and kind of making it, you know, the root, it is old Indians, uh, you make it kind of a new word, Paleo-Indian, which is all pushed together. Um, I, I use the AE as opposed to just EO for Paleo, um, because AE by convention is a more North American reference. Um, uh, Paleo, P-A-L-E-O, um, sort of connotes Paleolithic, um, so old world, so uh, Europe and the and Asia and and uh, African subcont and African subcontinents, and so um, basically all the same reasons for you as well. Continuity with other um, regions, uh, particularly in the Northeast and the far Northeast where we work, um, it's important to kind of use uh, cohesive terminology uh, uh, because what we're viewing during the Paleo-Indian period that we'll be talking about today is um, one or many migrations of people. Uh, making their way sort of into the continent and then across the continent very rapidly um, as part of this sort of like the first settlers of this new continent. And, and I think that that terminology unites this sort of um, uh, the, the first people of North America under one rubric, basically. Um, and, and also, you know, I think in modern parlance, as we talked about in the first episode, it sort of encompasses both the first people like the pre-Clovis and then what we'll be talking about today more uh, Clovis and their and other descendants of later paleo yeah 
Absolutely. And I, and I think the other thing that we should mention, um, I'm in total agreement with you on all of that, is that there are, in fact, um, localized uh, indigenous terms for uh, paleo people. So, um, for instance, the folks at DeBert have come up with terminology. But because we're trying to, to focus on this integrative uh, approach and we're trying to encompass different groups of indigenous people um, that now occupy the uh, Wabaraki homeland, we're not trying to preference any particular terminology and trying to emphasize those continuities. But we are absolutely referring to the ancestors of the contemporary indigenous people who occupy this place. And, and we'll be including in the show notes uh, reference to, um, like for the for example, the Mi'kmaq terminology, uh, cultural historical terminology for the um, Eastern uh, Maritimes region. Absolutely. Um, and so, we're going to take uh, a kind of excuse here to not talk about pre-Clovis, which is complicated and fraught. And we're going to say that here in the Northeast, the first archaeological evidence for people being here are descendant and related to Clovis. And so we're going to sort of frame this show around the idea that we're going to focus first on a kind of broad outline of Paleo-Indians in North America, uh, beginning with Clovis. Then we're going to look at the New England Maritimes region. And then we're going to look at New Brunswick. So we're going to kind of funnel this down um, and hope that we don't lose uh, the thread as we do that. Um, the But one thing we should warn the listener about is that it's a fascinating thing about Paleo-Indians is that the study of Paleo-Indians routinely makes otherwise sane people, otherwise sane archaeologists, just lose their minds. It's really fascinating. It's um, it's called olditis in the biz. <laughs> and um, and Ken and I were talking before before the show, and uh, and in fact, the uh, I've had somewhat limited experience on Paleo-Indian sites. I worked uh, I directed work one summer at. Uh, the so if you're going to do if you're going to do one summer of paleo indian research it should probably be at the michaud cluster that was my attitude which is this important cluster of paleo indian sites in maine i worked at the la montaigne site but when i was doing this i was on this really sweet health insurance plan through bates college you know it was an american college well to college and so as a result i actually i was seeing my analyst during this three days three days a week i'd, I'd cranked my wellbutrin uh, prescription up i just just through the roof and I was also recording all sorts of, of information, you know, biometrics, just to make sure that I was firmly keeping my boots on the ground during this. Because what happens sometimes is your archaeologists get into these, these into paleontic studies, and it's as if Captain Ahab had just nailed the silver dollar to the mast. And, and you are chasing that white whale, and come hell or high water, you're going you're gonna to find that, that white whale. So... That's um my and what well is that white whale, Gabe? That white whale, Ken, is a fluted point. And a fluted point is a is a point which is um has a, a flake, so a a, a conchoidal uh, fracture that as if you were to shoot a BB through glass, but it starts at the bottom of the point and goes towards the tip, and it shears off um what's called a channel flake, and the result is a point that has usually on both sides, um, a flute that's uh, removed and it goes from base to tip rather than most lithic reduction 
which goes side to side. And the and the flute is the a fluted point is totally unique. Ken, you're the lithics guy, but I I believe this is totally unique to North America, right? So uh, up until a few years ago, yeah. So this is um, so fluting is is a uniquely North American technology, um, and so um, fluting of Paleo Indian points um, up until actually just a few years ago was thought to be actually an exclusively North American technology. Um, uh, but there there are only actually three places in the world where that's been found, um, and so there's the Paleo Indian period in North America, and then a couple of years ago uh, they found evidence of fluting in Yemen and Oman from Neolithic sites between about eight and 7,000 years ago, apparently. No kidding. Um, and it, they, they don't look the same as Clovis points, right? Like these aren't like collaterally flaked or, or parallel flaked. And so what's what's unique about fluted points in North America is that these um, the, the projectile points, the bifaces that they're made on are really elegantly made um, and have a very distinctive flaking pattern where all of the flakes are taken from the sides um, meet almost at the middle, and they're they're almost parallel the whole way down the point. Uh, and then you strike this flute up the middle of them. Um, the photos I've seen of these fluted points, these Neolithic fluted points from um, from Oman and from the um, Arab world, basically are are not as fancy as Clovis ones. Um, and it's and there's obviously no relationship between the two of them. This is sort of like an independent thing. Um, but uh, but certainly North America, it's unique to North America. Um, it's fairly unique in the world, and it is the first indication of fluting in all of the world, um, which is, which is, it's, uh, and so I think really it is still a, kind of a uniquely North American technology, which is cool because it's, it's among maybe the only technology that was sort of developed here first, I guess, like, uh, that wasn't sort of built on some other or similar patterns elsewhere in the world. Yeah, that's fascinating. I had no idea that fluting ever occurred elsewhere. I'm going to have to change my lecture notes now, actually. So I, I had to actually correct myself during a class because I had a student ask me, um, is this the only place in the world where fluting has occurred? And I said, yeah, I think so. And I said, I, th I think it's a uniquely North American thing. And then I did some research that evening. And I like the next class, I had to come back and say, so I was wrong up until about 2020. Um, and there's this interesting article um, here. Let me just pull up. Uh, and we'll throw this article in the show notes too, because this is incredibly cool. I, I did, this is, I mean, this could almost be a hit piece. It's that new. Uh, I don't know if it's a hit. I don't know if it's that new. It's like oh, 2020, okay. I think was, uh, uh, you, you just keep rolling. I'm going to pull it up. Yeah, here. yeah. I've got it in the wrong bookmark. So while, while Ken is pulling this up though, I should say that the, the, what we're going to then describe here as we're, as we're fitting all this through, the reason we're talking about this fluted point technology is that the first fluted points in North America, the, the food points that people think about when they think about food points are Clovis. And we talked a little bit uh, last fortnight about the importance of establishing time depth in North America. And we mentioned that there were particular kinds of diagnostic projectile points that were discovered in association with uh, old forms of fauna. So with basically with Pleistocene megafauna. And that, that was really crucial to saying, well, humans were were killing these Ice Age megafauna. Therefore, humans have been in North America for a really long time, since the basically the end of the Ice Age. Yeah, like a really his important historical moment in in North and the understanding of indigenous history in North America was that, you know, you find a Folsom point embedded in a bison antiquus, it's uh you're you're older than four thousand years right there. Absolutely, yeah. And so when we're, and this actually really speaks to the sort of 
we're going to lay out a framework for you here, a kind of temporal framework. And we're going to try to do this without pictures, which is tricky. But we're going to, throughout this, everything is going to be sort of hung on three time periods, which are named basically after forms of spear points. Okay, so this is points that are attached to spears um, and probably, at least at first, very much used to hunt big mammals. And the first of these is Clovis. And Clovis is known for having a slightly shorter flute. That's that flake driven from base to tip. And then we get uh, balsam with that with a longer flute from base to tip. And then we get at the very end of the Paleo-Indian period around the continent, uh, lancelet points. And these don't have those flutes, although occasionally they've got a little bit of um, playing around with the bass. Yeah, aggressively basally thinned, I believe, is uh, Chris Ellis and David Black's terminology. It's a fantastic term. I like it a lot. Yeah. And but as a result, we're going to give you some more terminology for time um, related to these points as the show goes on and we narrow this down. But basically, one of the fascinating things of Paleo-Indians is that their mobility is in excess of what we would know for almost any ethnographically understood hunter-gatherer group. So as a result, these are ancestors of indigenous people that now inhabit the Wabanaki homeland who are basically colonizing all of North America in a number of years that is in the hundreds rather than in the thousands. So very, very quickly. So as a result, we're going to talk about the region we're in as we're going to use terms like Clovis derived or Folsom derived. Clovis-like. Clovis-like, these sorts of things. And what this just means is that we're using um, a local terminology for these groups that implies a uh, a slightly later um, occupation, but later in a, in very relative, you know, small terms, basically, that people are still moving from west to east, colonizing North America, and they're doing so very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, there's like a 300 year time lag between classic, the beginning of classic Clovis and the beginning of Clovis-like in the, in the far northeast, basically. Yeah. Did you find that article, Ken? I did, yeah. And uh, fl fluted point technology in Neolithic Arabia, uh, an independent invention far from the Americas. Uh, oh, it's it? a plus, plus one article by Remy Crassard, uh, Vincent Charpentier, uh, Joy McCorston, Jeremy Vosquet, Sofiane Bouzid, and Michael D. Petralia. Fantastic. And that far from the Americas, I think, says... You know, all you need to know about where Clovis, where fluted points are, are known from. Yeah, exactly. The um, And so when we're talking about um, Paleo-Indians, we're talking about the first, you know, well-understood colonization of North America. And so about 13,000 years ago, moving very rapidly across the Americas from the Northwest, and it's characterized by Clovis spear points, these fluted spear points we've talked about. Um, and this hyperdiagnostic technology and, and hunting megafauna. So this is kind of the classic basic frame that we're going to build all of this on. These people have a classic toolkit, and this includes big scrapers, and it's got a variety of styles made from really nice rock. So, you know, Ken's a rock guy, but 
I think it's actually better to hear this from a non-rock guy, which <laughs> is that Pale Indians seem to really like nice rocks. Like they like the kind of rocks that even I can make something that looks like a flake out of. Is yeah. that is that your sense too, Ken? Yeah, they like they like pretty rocks. And as we talked about the first week, they seem to like red rocks. Um, you know, uh, Nathaniel Kitchell has a paper out on this, but uh, even Dean Snow in like 1980 was talking about how red chirp might have been something to do with, you know, this uh, the kind of the connotations of blood and an animal hunt, um, you know, so that there's some uh, the these high quality materials were attractive, probably because you need very good material to make these elaborately flake fluted points. Um, but also there there was something there was definitely a I think there was probably an aesthetic element to it um, uh, and there's definitely preferential materials in different time periods <clears throat> so in southern Ontario they really uh, Paleo Indians uh, particularly fluted point and then up until basically sort of on the cusp of like um, lanceolate uh, but Paleo Indians in general like Collingwood chert which is this site like, very uh, uh, beautiful white chert um, uh, very fine grained and everything but um, it's not used basically after the Paleo-Indian period. So it's almost diagnostic in Southern Ontario. So if you find Collingwood chert, it's probably paleo. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. They, um, there's the the real Paleo-Indian enthusiasm though for, for high quality cherts seems to be a thing like throughout the continent though. It's, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, uh, yeah. And even like, you know, homeland of Clovis, which, you know, in New Mexico where the type site is, um, all throughout North America, it's 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 nice material. Like so, this was this was a thing that a, a group of people did have a press uh, real preference for. And there's a possible fluted point made even on Ramacher from Labrador that was found in Vermont, I believe. Oh really? Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. It's uh, it's a little dubious, you know, on the on the base, but the but but it looks like a fluted point to me, and and other people have uh, suggested that as well. So in addition to these fluted points, it's the, the fluted point is the big diagnostic thing. And, and we should say, we, we, mentioned, um, we mentioned that occasionally Paleo-Indian makes archaeologists lose their minds. Um, there's actually even a song about this. There's a popular song about this. That's by, a great song, uh, too. <laughs> by, yeah, yeah, by, by Tyler Childers. Who's, uh, and the song's called Banded Clovis. And the, the, Tyler Childers, is from, he's from Ohio, but he sort of purports to be a West Virginian, which is which is something you would do if you're from Ohio, which is, you know, maybe Ohio is probably the worst state in the United States. Virginia's easy, West Virginia's easily in the top five. And so uh, if, we, the, if we had any if we had any listeners from Ohio before this episode, I think we've just lost them. Yeah, we didn't have any listeners from Ohio. We might have gained some West Virginians, though. Yeah, well, I, I should hope the the uh, it's um the. The West Virginia Archaeological Society is welcome to chime in to sponsor this with a ringing <laughs> endorsement from Tyler Childers. But the but Childers has this song called Banded Clovis, and it's about these looters who go out and and one of the looters finds a, a point that I, I believe the, the quote is it's it's banded as hell, it was fluted in Clovis. Yep. Is that is that the line? Yeah. And then the other fellow that he's looting with, um, kills him and takes the point i think this is the premise of the whole country song yeah um which is a that's a niche country song right there but it's uh it's got a certain ring to it it's a great teaching material too it is yeah you can you can you can rag the puck for a good three and a half minutes on a class with that song <laughs> the um but there are other things in the kind of classic fluted point paleo indian toolkit and so these include uh big scrapers which are also usually made on high quality stone and that's likely for 
handling the hides from uh, from big mammals that people are killing with the projectile points. And there's also um, some other kind of interesting things. You get uh, on some of the scrapers, you get spurs. And the, the, the reason that the spurs exist, these are little basically protrusion off the sides of the scrapers. And that may exist. There's all sorts of literature on this because people may get tired as they're scraping. And so as a result, the scrapers wear out more on one side than the other. Might relate to handedness. We don't really know. In addition to this, you get um, a material called limbuses, which, which Ken, you're bilingual, I, I think means slug in French, doesn't it? Yeah, I, yeah, this a slug or a flake shaver or a, I think a burr is another name for them. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, these they're this sort of slug shaped uh, uh, flake shavers. So they're uh, they're basically a unifacial artifact that was um, kind of humpbacked and probably used for and hafted. I think was the is the idea behind them, and so. Some of the, I think the large humpback, like the big scrapers, the, um, the big unifaces, I think were probably um, big enough to be used in hand. And then the, the thinking is the limuses were probably hafted. Is, I think I've got that correct, don't I? I, I think that's true. I, I think with, with paleontic material, though, whether or not things were hafted is, is in the eye of the whole, everything is so, seems so large that you sort of think, well, it must be hafted, you know? Yeah, kind of cool thing about scrapers too. So uh, uh, in the southeast, uh, you have scrapers as part of this like uh, sort of diagnostic Paleo Indian toolkit, and then they disappear for like the rest of history until like uh, until the, like the contact period in the southeast. Oh, that's you don't totally see, bizarre. Really? You don't you don't see like a like them as like sort of a part of toolkits. Um, uh, like the, there's a line in like the the that Sassman and Papatat textbook that basically they talk about that scrapers essentially like that are like the paleo style scrapers could disappear basically until contact oh huh, that's totally wild because they they remain a huge thing up here yeah yeah, yeah and I mean, and and change in shape and form and everything as we'll as we'll talk about on the show uh but uh uh but yeah but don't disappear like they do there apparently so yeah that's really interesting huh and in fact we'll talk more about uniface technology um at length Either the show after next or next show, we still haven't quite figured this out. We'll even get back to spurred scrapers at some point. We will. That's true. Yeah. Um. So this. Uh. So stay tuned. You know, the the if if you're if you're still listening, even you Ohio listeners, we'll be In back six with... to eight weeks. We'll be talking about <laughs> spurred scrapers again. Precisely. Um. There are drills. Drills appear sometimes in Paleo Indian toolkits. Um. And then, but one thing we should mention that I feel obliged to mention is that even though we associate and we mentioned that paleons are associated with really high quality stone, really impressive tools, um, they also, in the, in the Northeast, use junky local material to make uh, choppers. Basically, and, ju junky tools out of junky material, like heavy you know, stuff for chopping down trees or breaking bone and, and processing, you know, probably the, you know, as you're initially tearing apart a, a large mammal, um, uh, you need a heavy tool for it. So the, uh, in, at the La Montaigne site, the, the, the stuff was called Christian Hill diabase and, and it, the, the source had been blown up to expand the airport. Um, but the, the material, it looked like, uh, I've got family from New Jersey and it looked like if you'd, uh, blown up their driveways, <laughs> essentially you had created something out of the kind of 
you know, tar cement stuff that they use in, in that part of the world to make driveways. Um, so the so we've talked a little about the toolkit. We've talked a little bit about the people. We're going to narrow this down more. So to quickly kind of recap, we've got people who are probably big game specialists. They're using a very diagnostic toolkit using high quality stone. And they are moving really, really rapidly to colonize North America from west to east. But we haven't talked much about the landscape. And so this period in time is the end of the last ice age or the Pleistocene. So it's this transitional period. And this is going to be important when we talk about our more local region. But it's also sort of important for understanding broader trends in the region. So uh, what we're looking at, I think, is, and, and kind of correct me here as and nuance this, Ken, is that in a broad sense, we're going to lump Clovis and Folsom, the first two fluted point periods together, as being the end of the Ice Age. And, That's fair, and yep. we can lump that together even more narrowly as being part of the Younger Dryas, which is basically that as the ice age is ending, especially during Folsom, things get a little bit colder again. Yeah. So sort of, you kind of get Paleoidian, then things get chilly and they get dry. Yeah. And and there's a little bit of little bit more nuance in there in that traditional Clovis predates the Younger Dryas in in like you know the Southwest and in other parts of the continent. But when you get into the Northeast. Clovis like begins at the start of the Younger Dryas. So, so there's about like I I mentioned earlier this kind of 300 year lag, um, and so traditional Clovis starts around three thirteen thousand two hundred years ago. The Younger Dryas starts around twelve thousand nine hundred years ago. And as we're sort of talking now for the probably for the next few minutes about sort of the Northeast New England Maritimes region, we're we're starting at around twelve thousand nine hundred years ago, which is the start. Of the Younger Dryas, and which terminates um, at around eleven thousand six hundred years ago, at the end of the Pleistocene, basically. And I should direct the listener to um, Ken and Dave Black. So they just had a chapter out in uh, a book from Nimbus Publishing called "The Last, The Last, Last Billion Years." The last, the last billion years. years yep. Yeah. And it's fantastic, um, and it deals with a lot of this because it considers humans alongside the kind of geological information and the kind of environmental information Ken's just talking about. And it's actually, it's a book that's really suitable for everybody too. So I, I think that's one of the many things. And it's also, the illustrations are fantastic. And one thing I would say is absolutely get the most recent one. You might be lured into some of the earlier ones, which were fantastic, but Ken's, Ken and Dave's chapter really updates some of the stuff he was just talking about. Yeah, yeah, we're very so it's it's the last billion years of geological history of the maritime provinces of Canada. Um, so it's the second edition just came out last year. Um, uh, Rob Fensom and Graham Williams are the editors. Um, and this was, you know, Dave and I played a very small part in two chapters toward the end of the book. Um, but but uh, if you want to learn basically where the maritimes, you know, all of our rocks come from, how the how the continent, how our part of the continent was formed. You know the the life that was here well before humans, um, and uh, and then 
uh, toward the end of it, they contextualize the human history. Um, and so Dave and I had the opportunity to contribute to a couple chapters toward the end, which was, uh, which is really great. I mean, there was, there was archaeology in the original version. And so this is basically, we, we got a couple extra pages to, to add this time to provide a little bit of extra context. So, um, but yeah, fantastic book. And, uh, and I've, I've told this story a few times to, to Gabe and others that um, this was a book that I read when I was like, I don't know, in, in, in early high school years. Um, uh, and so it was in the first edition. And so it's something that like, even for um, uh, those of you in grade school, it's a, it makes a fantastic Christmas gift or birthday gift for, for the young rock hound. Uh, among it does. Us. I was just going to plug that in. And the other thing is the illustrations are actually are really, really high quality in that book. Um, they are. Including of uh, one of New Brunswick's oldest paleo new points, which we'll return to. Yes, uh, that's true. Later in the show. Um, so what we've got then is the situation where, so we're, what, let, we might as well just sort of pivot local now to the New England Maritimes area. And that's a clunky formulation, I realize. Um, but basically what that is denoting is that it seems like throughout New England and maritime provinces of Canada, there's no evidence for Paleo-Indians in Newfoundland, that we've got this um, basically sort of shared cultural formulation for the Paleo-Indian period, where people are interacting across this enormous distance. It's a kind of shared cultural Thing that's going on what the environment probably would have looked like during this period um it would have been really dynamic so it would have been changing a lot it's probably a sort of tundra like environment and as people moved around um this is actually why i left uh fredericton today was that uh the this region would have had remnant ice caps much like downtown fredericton has in this this wonderful <laughs> Fred, uh, wonderful day um but the glaciers were retreating and uh, Ken, I feel bad putting you on the spot about this, but would you like to explain isostatic rebound to the listener? Uh, well, so basically at, at one point, probably I think up to about 14,000 years ago, um, most of the Maritimes was covered in what was it, like over a kilometer of ice or something yeah, like that. North, it's, yeah, the Wisconsin um, so the, glaciation, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, the Wisconsin right glaciation yeah. reached its peak um uh, uh our part of the wisconsin glaciation is the is the laurentide ice sheet uh which covered basically all of continental north america from the rockies east um and and covered south down to uh, about probably what like the the like virginia like uh, west virginia area or yeah, did I'm it get that far down i'm squinting at the the map in my mind and i so the, uh, the below the great a, lakes certainly yeah. There's a fascinating tangent about this, which at this year's ESAF meeting, I learned that there are some extremely dubious, um, essentially unbelievable uh, ideas about when like Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Ohio were deglaciated. Um, enough that made me uh, and 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 enough that made me basically not believe the mid-Atlantic maps on this stuff oh really yeah i um and i i sort of remember this this looking at the other archaeologists or something i it was don't hold me to this listener but this may be a hakuna errata next uh <laughs> next uh show but but someone said something like that that there were um places in i think pennsylvania that weren't de-iced until four thousand years ago 
And that's impossible. That, that that can't be right. That can't be right. No. Yeah. I mean, and, even um, like even in the Maritimes, which had the younger driest ice re-advance, I think all the ice was gone by like nine thousand years ago. Yeah, exactly right. And so we probably before that. Yeah. And we questioned this during the the session, and it turns out that this is there are actually like legit geological and environmental models that suggest this. They must just be incorrect. Huh. That's that is interesting. Yeah. I, um, so I'm, I'm actually looking at a, it seems impossible. I am looking at an ice margin map right now, uh, and it looks like actually that the max like so the peak glaciation would have covered down to below the Great Lakes, but probably hovering right around kind of like. Uh, a straight line between like Pennsylvania and uh, uh, sort of um, like Maryland. Um, so let's just say the at the Potomac is that uh, what drains out in Maryland? Uh, among other, yeah, the um, I think this is what William Gardner, the uh, who worked at the Thunderbird Paleontic site in Virginia, called the Biotic Mason-Dixon line. Oh. That would, uh, yeah. there you go. That's a little bit more eloquent than me kind of umming and awing about uh, what's going on. I think it's a great uh, phrase. Anyway, I, I like the phrase. Yeah. So getting back to isostatic rebound though. So uh, <laughs> picture, <laughs> picture over a kilometer of ice sitting on rock and that rock is sitting on a plastic surface, which is magma underneath the, the North American um, uh, uh, tectonic plate. Uh, and so as that ice melts, it lets off water, um, but it's also getting lighter. And so over time, basically what happens is that the, the more that ice of the ice that melts, um, there's more water going uh, streaming off of it, but uh, the, the weight that is pressing down on the continental ice shelf um, releases. And so you have basically a shift where uh, for a time you have uh, uh, high levels of water because you have water melting rapidly. And so you have the formation of of uh, you have what are called marine incursions. And so um, parts of central New Brunswick, basically up into um, really like um, past Fredericton uh, would have been under, um, and, and you know most of sort of the Grand Lake region would have been under a much larger uh, marine incursions as body of water that kind of came inland. And then over time, what happens is that that water comes down in a flash very quickly. Uh, and then starting at around, you know, 12,000 or so years ago, uh, that water starts to drop down again, and the continent springs back up, basically, because the weight that has been sitting on it, all that ice has been let off, and the continent starts to rise back up. And so you have a really dramatic change where you have um, ice melting and then a huge influx of, of water. Basically, the ocean comes up very high, um, and then that drops down, and, uh, and the land uh, uh, rises up again and the water levels drop very low again. And so you have changing landscapes all around. Um, and in particular, this is pertinent to Paleo-Indians because at the time that they were moving into the Atlantic Northeast, um, there was basically more land available for them to live in than we would see today. And another reason that it's significant archaeologically is that this means that, you know, it's something on the order of a 50 meter difference about where so, yeah. so the, there would vertical. have been about vertical difference yes. yeah yeah sorry yeah, yeah exactly so they would have been <laughs> if if there were coastal paleo-indian occupations they would be substantially underwater now yeah um along with this there's all sorts of things that happen to water courses on the interior so uh one of the things that happens is many things that are now swamps were 
glacial lakes. So um, you get you get this sort of change from lake to swamp. You get uh, changes in the where watercourses go and meander and how big they are. And so so it's this this period of of really also rapid change. That's I think another important point is that the landscape is changing really really quickly yeah. um, in this region. Yeah, and so and and it and it some kind of you know you have this original this sort of marine incursion and in the maritimes you uh and in central new brunswick for example you have this kind of interesting situation where you have um an influx of of uh ocean water at first um but then you have um because of isostatic rebound the water that's sitting in sort of central new brunswick as the land rises up gets trapped in there as the Bay of Fundy drops down. And so you have the formation of, of what are called proglacial lakes or um, um, these sort of stranded meltwater bodies that are a mix of uh, marine water and freshwater uh, runoff from, from melting glaciers. Uh, and so you have the formation of what's called glacial lake Acadia, which is you know sort of this ancestral lake for the string of lakes that dot the, the lower reaches of Wolostog River, um, forming for at least a, like three to probably 3,000 or so years um, coinciding with, with when Paleo-Indian groups were in the region. And so the, the knock-on effect of all this is that the analogy everybody always uses for thinking about Paleo-Indian landscapes is basically the subarctic. And there's some problems with that because you don't necessarily want to think about the Paleo-Indian period is being equivalent to subarctic people because subarctic people have been, by the time we know them in the ethnohistoric record, Stephen Lawrence talked about this, by the time we hear about uh, subarctic people in the ethnohistoric record, they've been forced off the coast, right? Because by Europeans, essentially. Yeah. So it's possibly a very different life way, and it's not one that's directly applicable. But in terms of just a kind of landscape, if you're to imagine the landscape Thinking about the subarctic, you're not going to be far off in in the sort of what fluted point Paleo-Indian we're living on, uh, and you'll be you'll be pretty close. So it's colder. You've got different kinds of uh, low shrubs, shrubs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so as this is all happening, one of the things that um, the Maritimes is known for is this extremely important Paleo-Indian site. And it's called the DeBert site. It's in Nova Scotia. Um, my, my connection to the DeBert site is that I almost wrecked uh, or was part of wrecking a minivan filled with uh, column samples of shell from a wooden period shell heap um, at, at essentially at the DeBert site. We pulled off to fuel up. The van was somewhat overloaded. I told the joke to the driver. We very nearly rolled it. Um, it would have been interesting to have the two of us in a shell midden and a minivan in the site. Very grateful that didn't happen. <clears throat> and um, but the debris site is one of these. It's not the earliest period of site known from the region, but it's among the earliest sites known from the region. And it's one of these kind of big clusters of sites. And yeah. so <clears throat> we should talk for a minute here um, about the phenomenon of site clustering. So we mentioned that the and environment... To give the listeners just a range, DeBert was occupied around, averages out to around 12,600, but falls into a period between about 12,700 and 12,200 years ago. Fantastic. And those are, those are real years too. So yeah, we're, yeah. we're, those we're are calendar real... years. We're going to, we're going to focus on using calendar years in the, in the, in this 
in our podcast broadcast so that we we do not lead the listener astray uh, by uh, throwing out random radiocarbon dates that aren't calibrated. And so just while we're on the subject of dates, actually, because we're about to go down this rabbit hole of, of dates and uh, naming these time periods in more narrow ways than we probably should, we should say that there's extreme difficulty in dating radio in dating paleoindian sites and that's for a variety of reasons but basically you'll remember from last episode that radiocarbon dating works on things that have died so the classic example is wood charcoal so you burn some wood it preserves it can date the death of the tree um the paleoindian sites are old they're often in very sandy soil matrices I believe you you explained uh, your summer at Le Montang is playing in the sandbox. Actually, it was it was it was really fantastic. Actually, they you you essentially you throw the you throw the sand in the screen, you you barely shake the screen. You kind of kick the screen. You pull the artifacts out, and then you do it again. the The only tricky part is that the walls keep caving in on your excavations if you're not careful. So you you just, you just keep an eye on that. But it's it's they're mostly in these fantastic soils. But there are very few features, and features are what archaeologists call immovable artifacts. So things like house floors, hearths, um, fire, pits. Are, are, fire pits. A hearth is a fire pit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, are are, are pretty rare in Paleo-Indian sites. So as a result, we have very few good radiocarbon absolute dates on Paleo-Indian sites. We do have some though. And many of these sites, um, sorry, many of these dates are from burned bone. We've got some burned bone. And then others are from some of these bigger sites, such as actually DeBert, which had some fairly identifiable features. From these dates, what archaeologists uh, have done, and especially, and we'll put this in the, a link to this in the show notes, but uh, Bradley and colleagues in Archaeology of East North America use these absolute dates to devise um, a point typology for New England and the Maritimes region. What this point typology does is it looks at what are actually pretty small nuances in the changes in Paleo-Indian points. So things like the length of the flute, the depth of the basal concavity, whether or not there is a fluid or not, to try to put in approximate order a series of types. Yeah. And, and these types are each named for sites. I, most and, of them are named for two sites. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're going back to the, what, what Gabe was talking about before, where you've got the, the Clovis being the fluted points, Folsom being the deeper fluted points, and then, and then Plano being these, these unfluted points. So like the, uh, like Jethro Tall without Ian Anderson, basically. <laughs> the, uh, I, so the, the listener can't see that Ken just checked his notes for that joke. I'm just going <laughs> to put yeah, him yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cue the, cue the tall note. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so, so the, these, these point types are in sequence though. I'll just, I'm going to name them just because why not? The first one, King's Road Whipple, the next one, Vale de Burt, the next one, Bullbrook, West Athens Hill, and those are the earliest ones. Those are equivalent, if you hear those terms, those are your Clovis-like or your Clovis-derived, 
Yeah, and that ranges from 12,900 to 12,200 years ago. Exactly. And then your your next ones are your Misho Neponset. Your this this one's kind of cheats because it's just got the one the one site. Your Crowfield related, which is a site in southern Ontario, actually. Yeah. So yeah. which which the astute listener will notice is not in the Maritimes or in New England. <laughs> and then your Cormier Nicholas, and these are your your Folsom like points, your Middle Paleonian points, and that's and that is ranging from twelve thousand two hundred to eleven thousand six hundred. So at the end of this, this is the end of the Middle Paleo-Indian period, which is the end of the Younger Dryas as well, and also the end of the uh, Pleistocene. That's right. And so for, um, and then we switch to our landslip forms with no fluting or occasionally aggressive face, was it aggressively basally thinned. Fantastic. Yep. And this is, and these are your agate basin related, and these refer to St. Anne Varney, um, points which are your unfluted or plano like points if you're thinking about this in a broad continental term for my purposes i tend to think about fluted point paleo-indian merging the middle and the late at the middle and the early and then i tend to think about late paleo-indian referring to the lancelots and um, and, and so gabe the listener might be wondering why flute a point ken i thought you'd never ask we just leave this here as a pause, right? The answer is nobody knows. Uh, this is this. So I, I'm glad you brought that up. The nobody knows why flew to point. In addition to that, we don't know how exactly Paleonians fluted points. We know that contemporary flutenappers can flute points. They often do it uh, through direct percussion. So basically hitting the base of the point hard. Yeah, but they also have a variety of other complicated methods. Which I think you've looked into recently. Yeah, Ken, like, the, right? the, like there's like the, this chest punch method where you basically put an anchor, a very long rod, basically in your chest, and you kind of heave down and try to shove off a point. But yeah, for the most part, it basically takes a lot of prep work. Um, sort of, um, you prepare a very clean platform, which is basically. Um, you're, you're setting up like a, a place to make contact between your percussor and your stone um, because essentially you have like so wait, kind so of your, one... your percussor I'm going to walk you back just for a second when you say percussor so so you're either you're probably using a piece of antler um, uh, in this case uh, or, or and uh, you could use rock as well but uh, in most demonstrations of this and most of what I've read about is that if you're going to try to flute a point you'll probably use antler so um, an antler billet so some a piece of you know uh, moose or deer antler that you've carved into kind of a with a butt end you'll prepare this platform to so you're going to prepare a place to strike and you kind of have like one go at this <laughs> which which makes it kind of all the more interesting why people did this um, and I think we do we talk about bull broken here but like what they're doing in the in the circle but you know it's 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 not in our show outline as you can tell listener ken and i have have carefully prepared the notes for this it it um we we scanned the same cocktail napkins to one another before this <laughs> um but uh but no we don't so so but you you kind of raised this point that you, you said you get one go at it it's easy to screw this up right this is this is um contemporary foot nappers report that frequently you you get this beautiful point and the last step you do is you go to drive this flake from base to tip off and you snap the thing in two um, because it's very hard to do 
Um, even with a complicated rig, like the crutch described that you're going to hit with your chest, you know, when the point's in a vice, it's still pretty easy to break. And so um, at Bull Brook, which is an important Paleo-Indian site in Massachusetts, so in the New England Maritimes region, and this is, uh, you'll recall, because I know you all were taking careful notes on this, this is one of the earlier um, Paleo-Indian occupations. There's this really, really fascinating site. And this site has really precise spatial patterning. It was worked on by Brian Robinson and colleagues. And they identified that there were essentially tight areas at this site. So walk back one step here, that there were, um, first of all, this site was probably an aggregation site where groups of families came together. And this is due to the large number of probably contemporaneously inhabited houses. And you may be like, well, okay, you just said you don't have features. And that's true. But what you do get is you get artifact patterning in basically round patterns that seems yeah. like there were structures around where people were working on these artifacts. And the and these artifact patterns are are like, you know, right in the size of of what like house how like what uh, type of houses that you would expect people to live in um even later in time. So they're, you know, four to six meters and around there. They look like they're basically probably nuclear families or maybe a little bit bigger than that in some cases. Um uh and and so yeah, it, it is really interesting that this like this particular site is really fascinating to look at um how they've mapped out all this patterning. Yeah, and um and and Brian, in a series of articles, sort of explored why are the activities within this area, within this aggregation site, so seemingly um, patterned, right? And so, for instance, you get spaces where it seems like people are fluting points. You get spaces where it seems like people are using scrapers. And so... Brian's interpretation of this using a number of ethnographic analogies involved gender, that there were very tightly prescribed gendered spaces. But one of his other, I think, particularly interesting hypotheses about this kind of patterning was this idea of a fluting shaman. So that there might actually be, as part of this preparation for going out hunting, this sort of activity where the actual fluting of the point was an important, basically, ritual activity before going on a hunt. And I think one thing just about hunter-gatherers in general that's I find very intriguing, um, and we've talked about this before, Ken, is that it's it's when we think about the hunt, right? If we think about, if you're going to just watch like an ethnographic documentary, the temptation to treat the hunt as a, as a thing in which, you know, a bunch of dudes with a spear go out and kill something is not how actually most hunter-gatherers conceive of hunting. In the ethnographic literature, they mostly conceive of hunting as really this this much more sort of ongoing process in which the animals are essentially often giving themselves up to the hunter. And so as a result, that's got all sorts of interesting implications. And so for the Cree, which is the analogy everyone uses for this, and the reason that everyone uses this analogy is because Adrian Tanner wrote a brilliant book called Bring Home Animals that everybody should read. Um, but basically that there are all sorts of things that happen just on day-to-day -day life that you need to worry about to make sure that the animals will continue to give themselves up to the hunter. So the way in which people organize their houses um, is really, really important. There's all sorts of gendered patterning about this. Um, like the, Tanner's got that great diagram. You probably remember this, but the 
about you need to be a little bit careful because there's there's all these gender prescriptions about bears and you want to make sure that bears and women because they're both precisely gendered um because bears are so gendered in the ethnographic literature you just slide the bear under the tent flap rather than through the door because you don't want women and bears in the same door once you get the bear in there you've got to make sure that different parts of the bear the the male parts of the bear are aligned and the male parts of the tent the uh, women's parts of the bear are aligned the women's parts of the tent you need to be careful not to step over them so there's all these these all this patterning going on and so as a result, you can imagine the situation and Brian really lays out this situation. Brian's the one who turned me on to Adrian Tanner's book, actually. So I've got a tremendous fond spot for, for this whole thing. But the basically saying that, well, it would make sense that there would be at a big aggregation site where everyone's on their best behavior because all these families have come together and we're hunting all these caribou that probably come to this place in a very predictable way. And so what we're doing is we've, we've really uh precisely sorted out how we're going to act and that means that this fluting shaman thing needs to be in a particular place because we got to do this right tonight so that the caribou will behave the way we want them to tomorrow yeah yeah you can you can tell gabe uh is the uh is the domestic space archaeologist here in on the podcast uh, the the uh um but uh that's 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 great that and actually it's really important to understand this context and so this is one of the things that i've I, I've had a lot of questions from my students when they read this article is, you know, how is it that he can make these, uh, uh, these, these um, interpretations about gender based on just like patterning and stone tools and, and, you know, then you have to kind of wind things back and you get an opportunity to introduce this whole notion of, of ethnographic analogy that we use in archaeology that's, you know, sort of um, we, we bait, as Gabe has mentioned a few times that a lot of what we understand about Paleo Indians um, is derived from sort of contemporary and, and, you know, probably 19th and early 20th century ethnographic studies of, of, uh, of hunter gatherers, um, living in, um, in cold environments, basically. And one place to actually, if you're, if you're thinking about these, these sorts of topics, there's a great ethnographic film that's available online. It's from the National Film Board of Canada, and it's called The Cree Hunters of Mistassini. Um, fantastic film and, and completely recommend it for this. Yeah. And actually, you can you can uh, did uh, you can watch it online now? Like all, almost all these yes. NFB films are are streamable online. So yeah, and uh, and it's just terrific about about this stuff. It, it's got this great line in it. The uh, one of the, th the things that's going on here is is that there there it's the shared hunting territory and maybe the sixties or seventies, and um, there's all sorts of patterning about how they handle animal remains, and so there's this this fellow tying up um beaver remains in a tree and the interviewer basically says the, the talking creeps you know why why are you doing that and he says something like that's what we've always done and i think that's like this you know fantastic idea that there could be this sort of time depth of this stuff but also this fantastically human moment at which you're trying to reflect on why do we do it this way and the answer is essentially uh culture which yep. I think is, is kind of great. Habitus? Yeah. Tradition? Habitus, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The, um, the uh, fantastic. And so we should just kind of summarize then maybe quickly the way in which it seems like Paleo Indians are living in the main Maritimes region 
before we move on specifically to New Brunswick, which we're we're leaving very little time for New Brunswick, but there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you'll, you'll notice that there's sort of uh, diminishing information the further north we get. It's true. It's true. The uh, we, We've mentioned uh, one site in Nova Scotia for the uh, up and over effect. And uh, but so what's what's going on here is we mentioned that Paleo Indians are probably big game specialists. So in the far northeast, in the New England Maritimes region, big game equals caribou. And caribou are really, really fascinating. And I, uh, Arthur Space, Maine State Archaeologist, important uh, and really, really interesting uh, work on Paleo Indians. But before that was a kind of caribou hunter guy in general, you know, in, interested in this. And I read his book and I thought to myself, I'd always thought the mystery about caribou hunters was the people. It turns out the mystery is also the caribou. There are all sorts of things we don't know about caribou, um, including, you know, like how exactly they decide when to move, how they can detect hunters, all these kinds of things. Caribou herds are more complicated than I certainly would have thought. And But one of the things that we know about caribou is that you can say, well, yeah, they're they're following caribou, but they're not really following caribou. Caribou move too quickly. So they're intercepting caribou at places they know caribou are going. Yeah. This... And, and caribou, just to scale it back here, caribou are fundamentally like migratory animals, uh, large mammals, right? You know, that they, they sort of move in semi-predictable large aggregations uh, uh, between sort of, they sort of have spring and fall movements to sort of favored patches of lichen, I'm guessing, and, and other resources. Yeah, and potentially to um, remnant ice caps where there are no bugs. Yep. Turns out this is, this is a place you maybe would intercept them. Our, um, Brian Robinson and Bert uh, Pelletier did some work on this and basically said, you know, and the premise would be that at a place like Bull Brook, where we we're talking about there, the landscape is such that it would be easier to predict where they were there, but it would happen less often. Whereas you could go further north and caribou are hanging out on the on these relatively bug-free icy areas where you can have some degree of success hunting them. We know that um one of the the uh the kinds of migrations that we're talking about. For Northeast Paleo Indians, and we're about to caveat this, are over 400 kilometers. So we're talking about people moving um, over these massive areas on a seasonal basis. But, intrepid listener, you may be about to ask, how do they know that? And the the reason we know that is pegged uh, extensively to one particular kind of rock, <laughs> and that rock is called Munsungan Chert, and it's from Far northern Maine. The have you have you been to? I don't think I haven't been up to Monsungan yet. I haven't I haven't yeah. had a chance to take in one of these field trips. The uh, so I went uh, last summer, and to give the listeners some sense of of what it's like, you 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 drive to Presque Isle, Maine, the the bustling metropolis that is Presque Isle, Maine. <laughs> Spend the night in Presque Isle, and then you. You go on for a while and you you end up uh, in basically Ashland, Maine. You stop in at a, at a mill and you speak to the, the fellow there that handles the Woods Road. And he then directs you to another person who handles the Woods Road. 
And then you you drive for about six miles and your cell phone cuts out. And 50 miles later, you end up at the field camp where the archaeologists are working. Um, and so we stayed with the Salve Regina Field School, who were out there for a, for a lot of time in a very rustic location. And the reason they're there is that uh, Nathaniel Kitchell and Heather Rockwell just identified the quarry uh, a few years ago for the the kind of the gourmet Paleo Indian shirt. The yeah, and we, and not just Paleo Indian, like the stuff that you see in the late woodland as well, like the the really nice red variant of this of this silicified mudstone that we call shirt. Yeah, even Ken calls it red, and he can't see the color red, which is <laughs> which is the. But it's it's the Christmas tree is the phrase they use, right? It's like the the it's kind of a green grading to red, yeah, uh, material often, and this stuff appears over the uh, throughout the Maritimes, uh, New England region. So now we had two caveats. The first caveat is that. This fellow named Speth at the University of Michigan has pointed out that the actual amount of chert that appears at Paleo-Indian sites is something like two backpacks worth. So it's not like we've got a huge amount of this stuff. So it's possible a couple of guys are hauling up to Monsungan every once in a while and returning with enough chert for uh, for a generation. So that's that's one possibility. Rather than the whole group's moving, we might be having some sort of direct procurement going on. Yep. The other problem is that it's become increasingly apparent that actually telling Monsungan chert from a few varieties of New York chert is really, really difficult. Uh, so there are kinds of Norman scale chert that look an awful lot like Monsungan chert. And you're looking concerned, Ken. I hope, I hope this isn't. No, no, this is, uh, this is the, uh, the XRF study they did a couple of years ago, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It's XRF. It's also just visually the stuff is alarmingly similar. Um, yeah. The uh, uh, a mutual colleague and friend of ours, Zach Singer, who's a Paleo-Indian guy. He's not a Paleo-Indian guy. He's a Paleo-Indian researcher from, uh, from, and he works in Maryland now, um, but did a lot of work in Connecticut. Posted, I think, to his Instagram, a picture of from the source Monsungan beside from the source Norman Skill and invited the viewer to trying to tell which was which yeah. and it was not comforting for any of us i don't think no and this is i mean we have the same issues in new brunswick so there's there's carboniferous shirts from south central new brunswick the stuff that i study um that also occur in northern new brunswick uh and and in small pieces uh, look almost uh indistinguishable from material from nova scotia yeah um and so that's how we interpret this big long uh, range. And we've talked about some of the problems with paleontic sites, and this continues to be a problem in this area where they are shallowly buried. They're often on soils that are deposited by glacial runoff. There's not many plants during the Younger Dryas, and so the soils are probably these like windblown dunes that made nice sheltered landforms. And then only later do these get secured by vegetation once the climate gets warmer. <clears throat> and we find paleontic sites at generally a place where there are good views of what were water courses back then. So we've got this complicated model for understanding Paleo-Indian sites, which is that you need to, if you're looking at, say, more recent sites, you can typically say, well, the landscape's about like it was. It's not really true for Paleo-Indian sites. You need to think about them 
in terms of these other factors. Yeah, you need to be sort of a a, a, a more than casual geologist uh, to really get at where Paleo-Indian people were living um, and, and, and have more than just a cursory knowledge of surficial geology because uh, quaternary ge geology in particular, so late Pleistocene, early Holocene, uh, geological processes to really understand the kinds of landscapes and and understand you know first of all the formation and so when these sort of landscapes would be available um and and whether they persisted after paleo indian groups would have been there so there are places for example where um, we talked about the younger dryas and and you know there are landscapes in new brunswick that would have been ice free when the paleo indians were in the region um, but during the Younger Dryas, or when the Paleo-Indians were coming in, I guess, and then during the Younger Dryas, for, you know, 1500 years or so, um, the area was recovered with ice. Uh, and so there's absolutely almost no chance of finding stuff from that time period in some areas, because uh, I had a geologist explain to me that if they were here, it would have, uh, you'd find it in a fine paste uh, in this till layer, basically, so that, you know, you, you'd... Uh, this stuff would be crushed and ground by a, by a glacier. And so uh, understanding these, these past landscapes is really important for, for understanding where Paleo-Indian people would have lived and, and doing the archaeology. Um, and that massively changing landscape also creates, I think, one of the most interesting aspects of Paleo-Indian settlement, which is that it's this phenomenon of Paleo-Indian site clustering. Yeah. And so typically Paleo-Indian sites occur in clusters where there are a bunch of sites around one landform and the sites don't perfectly um, overlap. And so we've talked about uh, one that I worked at, which is the Little Montaigne site. The Little Montaigne site is part of the Michoud cluster, which is around the Lewiston-Auburn airport. This, this is actually, it turns out that, that Paleo-Indian site locations are also very good for municipal airports. Yep. This is a strange fluke of geology. Um, but so uh, there are a series of sites located, basically clustered around that airport. And they're in the same, they're in the same approximate location, but they're, you know, a kilometer, half a kilometer apart from one another. What it seems like is probably happening is that the landscape is changing so rapidly that there's a bunch of good reasons to keep coming back to that approximate area. But the ideal place to camp will change slightly over time. And so you end up with these, you know, through a few generations, you end up with a bunch of sites in approximately the same area. Yeah. And and, and because because we have such a such difficulty with dating these sites, we also have really poor resolution about how, you know, we, we don't even have sort of generational overlap in a lot of these dates. Um, we have ranges of, you know, a couple hundred years in these clusters. And and I guess maybe Michaud is a little bit different, but I think like DeBert Belmont, they overlap, but they don't, there's no clear contemporaneity other than looking at the types of stone tools that they were using. We can say, well, this fits into uh, a broad period of, you know, five to 600 years when we know these groups were using this sort of tool. Yeah. And in general, I mean, contemporaneity is like really difficult in archaeology because radiocarbonates don't work at the same scale that hunter-gatherers lived. Yeah. So... You and and that'll be a recurring theme in this podcast, I suppose, or or this this podcast series. Um, and it seems like these there are probably also aggregation sites that occur at places where people would have intercepted caribou. So different family bands coming together, 
maybe to intercept caribous. And this this is in some part a riff on these big Pleistocene kill sites that we get out west where groups of paleo Indians came together to kill a bunch of caribou and process them and eat a whole bunch of them. We get, you know, um, like Folsom's known for this out west. Like bison, so we get the this. bison kill sites. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so is this scaled down for caribou? That's sort of the model that we have out here. Um, and then, uh, so that sort of talks about fluted point Paleo-Indian. And then there's the big problem that in a cultural historical term, late Paleo-Indian happens. There's the environmental change from the Younger Dryas to climate that starts to be much more similar to what we have now. And then things change. And then archaeologists don't know what happens. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty like people, they stop floating their points. And then for a while, they make things that sort of look like fluted points. And then they start notching their points. And this all kind of happens somewhere between, you know, 11,600 and 9,000 years ago. Um, we don't, there aren't a ton of sites that we found for around that time period. Um, and, and yeah, it, there's, there's a whole lot of ambiguity about what's happening. Is, is it population change? It is, is it, you know, are there new people coming in or is it just new ideas? Um, is it sort of a dramatic response to, um, uh, you know, the fundamental changes going on around you? And so people are kind of negotiating changes in their worlds. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a confusing time uh, archaeologically. Um, uh, and for and for a time, I guess we'll get to this. Uh, we we even thought people weren't here for a few thousand years. That's true, and that's that's going to be a big theme next uh, next fortnight. I think. Yeah, it's going to be this this kind of great hiatus. This idea that there was this big chunk of missing time in the region. Um, one thing we do know about late Paleo Indian is that it appears like things become much more local. So if the theme of fluted point Paleo-Indian is a shared continental um, culture, these big kind of cultures, it seems like we start to see more specialization in late Paleo-Indian. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, and and, the, and I think it's the materials get to be, like lithic material gets to be more localized. I mean, yeah. d- despite this though, like I, you, you know, agate basin style lanceolate points in Alberta look almost identical to, you know, Michon upon, or what are they, uh, uh, St. Anne Varney, right. Lanceolate points in the New England Maritimes region, you know? And, yeah. Uh, we found a Lanceolate point in, in Southern Ontario that looks almost identical to what you'd see in, uh, in, in like New England. Um, yeah. So, so there is still this shared idea of about how you make your tools, but I guess it's that we're not, you know, going 400 kilometers or so to get the rock. Yeah. Or only sometimes doing that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so should we talk about New Brunswick? I think we should. Yeah. All I, right. No. <laughs> the coda on late Paleo Indian is that uh, the story continues. Yeah, exactly. And the story continues and it overlapped with next week. I guess that we can foreshadow that, that there's yeah. this, that's one of the problems. <laughs> and, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to just uh, put a teaser out there. People didn't leave. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so 
uh, we're going to now turn to New Brunswick, which is going to be a short part of this. This uh, it's a, a mutual friend and colleague of ours, Ken, uh, the uh, Amy Fox, the great uh, archaeologist from uh, Toronto who works on a lot of mathematical stuff. She told me that uh, her partner said that these are called sodes in the biz. Like apostrophe S O D E S. Like episodes? Eps. We've been calling them eps, yeah, but apparently they're sodes. Oh, this is like how I called um, Instagram the gram for a while, and I learned that it's actually supposed to be called Insta. Oh, I've still been doing that wrong, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, at, at, this is the shorter part of the sode or the app or whatever this is. Um, and, uh, so what we should say, I guess, is where does New Brunswick fit in this? And and we basically suspect that New Brunswick is the same as the New England Maritimes model we've described in general. For a long time, most of what we knew about New Brunswick, Paleo-Indians, and this fits with, if you were to say, what did we know about Maine um, Paleo-Indians in the 1970s? We knew that, that Paleo-Indians were there. But we knew that mostly from fine spots, which is that people, mostly avocational, would occasionally find these incredibly diagnostic fluted points and report them. And so this uh, in okay, New Brunswick. I, I, you, have, you have a line, actually, that I think we, we, we didn't actually mention at the start. So Gabe said diagnostic. And so when you find a fluted point, um, you have a really great note here that these are actually hyper-diagnostic. Like, you know, we talked at the start of the show that like there might actually be another spot in the world where people made fluted points. But if you find a fluted point in North America, there is no other time period in 13,000 plus years of history here. Um, if you find one of these, you're talking very old stuff, which is really fascinating. Um, and yeah. The, the hybrid line, I think that's, that's a Brian Robinson line from a review of archeology span uh, article. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, yeah. Contrasting it with, uh, pre-Clovis with what you might expect for pre-Clovis and, and the premise of the article is that it's almost unfair to expect that pre-Clovis would be something equivalent to Clovis because Clovis occurs like once you know it's you know the it's, there are you know the the old phrase like people talk about projectile points say there's only so many ways to skin a cat and it's true but they really only skinned it that way you know for a little <laughs> while um but so we we strongly suspect from these fine spots, just like we did in Maine, that there's no reason to imagine that Paleoindian in New Brunswick is any different than it is anywhere else. And these yeah. fine spots have been at places like Kingsclair, at Quaco Head, at uh, New Norton Creek, at the Northwest Miramichi. You point out there's probably a, a, a Holcomb-esque point in the George Frederick Clark collection. And is this, yeah. this on maybe Washtomoic? Yeah, possibly made on Carboniferous chert that looks like Washtomo chert um, for various reasons, probably not coming from Bellier's Cove, um, because as, as I talked about earlier, Bellier's Cove was probably underwater at around that time, um, under, under glacial Lake Acadia waters, basically. Um, but we do know, um, some of my research has indicated that there are other places where you could get chert that looks almost identical to Washtomo chert that would have been above the water um, at that time. So maybe on a kind of a high... Point overlooking a much bigger lake at that time in the past. And um, yeah, and there's other places like uh, in the Petticodiac. Um, what's interesting too, is if you look at like the patterning of where all these fine spots are found, 
They're mostly almost all in the southern part of the province. Um, I don't think anything's been found north of like the, the Northwest Miramichi, like the big Clearwater mm. sort of that's in central New Brunswick. Um, and, do you think and, you that's know, real patterning or do you think that's population? I don't know. I guess I guess it could be a population thing. I just mean that like if you look at it on a map, you've got Maine, all the Maine Paleo-Indian sites, and then you've got DeBert, and then you've got kind of like a straight line of people finding points across southern New Brunswick. And oh, some of that, some of that may be an environmental thing. I don't know. Like you, you, you definitely had remnant ice in northern parts of the province. Um, and and certainly ice readvancing during the younger dryas down into places like uh, you know, even like Napadogan and Juniper area, you'd have. Uh, a nice uh, a nice margin around that area, and so that there may have been limited space for people to be at that time too. We cool. just don't have a clear picture. The listener may have just caught my my aspirated yes there, as promised earlier. That they take you. Want to practice that one again? I think it's part of your your uh, residency requirements. So, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> and so um, when we were in graduate school. Uh, 2010 2010 so? 2009 that, to 11 is that when darcy found the uh, penfield site it was while we were in grad school because i remember taking yeah. a road trip down there yes uh and so we're we're now shifting into so can can i say that we're now shifting into pretty much the realm of stuff that's not published and we know only by impressions um, yeah and Some, you listener might wonder what your taxpayer dollars are going for. And Ken and I might say you would be correct to wonder about that. So yeah, there's been some conference papers and a couple of uh, short reports. Um, but we we haven't seen kind of a big, uh, big publication on on Penfield um, um, or any of the other like there's another site Marysville that was executed a few years ago as well that has a, a short technical report that we can draw some inferences from but uh, but the big picture is still kind of uh, out there to be uh, to be said. Yeah. And so Penfield's in Charlotte County, New Brunswick. So basically uh, kind of coastal. It's near St. Andrews. Um, Excellent pie there, actually. Oh, McKay's Pies. They have a they have a blueberry stand in Penfield um, that uh, has possibly the best blueberry pies I've ever eaten. Holy cow. And I've but eaten I... an entire blueberry pie from McKay's on the drive between Penfield and Fredericton. That's, uh, that's impressive. I couldn't do that now. But but the, uh, <laughs> I, I find myself more able to do that now than I used to be. I just, just, just less able to fit into my sweater the next day. The, um, so, uh, what, what do we actually know about the Penfield site? Uh, it's on a high point. It's a, it's kind of an odd location. So it's not even really all that nice of a location for, like a characteristic site for a Paleo-Indian site. Like it's not like a big, well-drained, like kind of outwash deposit, uh, but it is at a high point and probably would have been fairly close to um, the edge of the water at that time. Um, you know, it is located close to a stream that probably would have been running, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a deeper gully now. Um, there was, uh, there there's some local lithic material that was available, but probably not used uh, during Paleo-Indian times, um, we know that there's a transitional archaic component at the site um, that that which local material... Which fits with Paleo-Indian, actually. Which does that, fit with... Yeah. Yeah. So so by, you know, by knowledge of the transitional archaic uh, site, we know that there's there's also 
Um, I don't know in terms of diagnostic tools. I know that like uh, the original site find Darcy, I think was walking through an area. So this was during the route one um, uh, bypass. Uh, so they're twinning the highway between St. John and uh, St. Stephen. And uh, uh, basically the uh, uh, developer had gone out and had prepped an area that had actually not been surveyed yet. Um, and so uh, Darcy Dignam went out, was called up to go out and survey the area and was walking around. And, and the story goes that he was on his phone. And, with Jesse uh, Webb, wasn't he? With Jesse Webb. And, yeah. and uh, I think shouted a curse word or something. And, and under his boot was a, uh, or, or near his toe, just before he stepped on it or something, was a Munsunken shirt spurred scraper. I think that was, isn't that that's the my recollection? Yeah, yeah. That's so, so, you know, like a, diag a very diagnostic um, a Paleo-Indian artifact uh, made on uh, distinctive uh, fine-grained shirt from northern Maine, which you find on a lot of Paleo-Indian sites in the Maine Maritimes region, um, and uh, and certainly a very interesting find. And and uh, um, you know there was a, a fairly large uh, mitigation uh, excavation project done there um, in the subsequent summer, uh, put on by the uh, New Brunswick Archaeology Branch, uh, the provincial archaeology branch. Um, I think that focused mostly on the transitional archaic component. Um, the province actually shifted the highway design so that they were able to avoid the main occupation where the Paleo-Indian site was. Um, they also found a late woodland site there as well. Um, oh, interesting. Ram I didn't know that. Ramachurt and, and a small late woodland campsite. So an interesting landscape, um, but certainly one that we'll, we hope, we'll hopefully find out more about in the, in the coming years. Yeah. And, and we should make, make clear that... Uh, uh, Darcy and Jesse and those folks were just involved in the initial finding of the site, not actually the subsequent. Yeah, not the subsequent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so. and to their credit, presented on that at the CAA. So, so that's that is in, in some sense in the literature. Um, yeah. Um, we, and then the only the only other intact site would be the the Marysville uh, Paleo Indian site, which was also found because of road construction um, during some work uh, Route Eight just outside of uh, Marysville uh, a few years back now. Um, Again, same thing. Uh, there had been some ground prep work done. Uh, a, an archaeologist who works in the city uh, was driving by and took a look at some backdoor piles and noticed some artifacts in them. Um, some subsequent work basically determined that uh, uh, recovered some scrapers and a denticulate, uh, spurred scraper, probably a few other diagnostic artifacts. Um, I've looked at four pieces from that art, from that assemblage um, that appear to be Carboniferous chert. So another example of of what a material that looks like washed oak lake chert, but uh, but in a in a Paleo Indian context, um, there's some thinking that the the site it's it's really sandy there, and so there's thinking this might have been uh, an old beach, probably um, a well drained beach area, sort of on the margins of Glacial Lake Acadia. Um, that's based on like local topography and some of the geological work, um, but uh, but we don't have um, we don't have a whole lot of other. I I, I don't know if there's another any other excavation that's gone on in a Paleo-Indian site in New Brunswick, has there? I'm not sure. No. And, and am I correct that Mar Marysville is not in the literature yet? It's excavated uh, There's by a the... short technical report um, that the, that the province put out, but, uh, but uh, no publications as yet. No. Okay. Right. Yeah. No, no peer review publications. Um, I, I'm unaware of any others in, in the, in the province. Um, so, but one of the things this may speak to you actually though, is that, in places like Maine uh, and the rest of New England, one of the real successes, I think, of government, academic, 
CRM and even public collaboration around archaeological research has really been to find out much more about the Paleo-Indian period. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and you know, like the finds of Penfield, for example, um, shifted the way the places that we were looking for for archaeological sites in CRM in New Brunswick. Um, it, it prompted a shift in, in the places that we were required to do mandatory testing in. Uh, or at least recommend testing in. So, you know, I think having a better sense of where these sites might be located um, and doing a better job of, of identifying those sorts of landscapes um, will certainly give us a better sense of like a, a, a better chance to find another one of these sites intact. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, 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 and we've mentioned the importance of cultural resource management for this and, um, so some of this is that just that that a characteristic of Paleo-Indian sites is that they tend to be fairly what archaeologists call low density, which just means not necessarily a ton of stuff. And so the way you find them is by digging holes at pretty close intervals, um, yep. typically at, at, say, five or even less, actually, sometimes at two and a half meter intervals in, in high probability areas for Paleo-Indians. And so that is not if you're a cultural research management archaeologist what you want to explain to your client that you're going <laughs> to you're going to dig at minute intervals across this this landform um and so but much of the work in Paleoindians in New England has been through those collaborations i just mentioned and um some of that is actually then used a vocational archaeologist as well who are basically have an awareness of these things um and who then have an opportunity to be engaged in mitigating or even identifying Paleo-Indian sites. And I just wanted to flag two programs that I think are the kinds of things we should be thinking about here in Canada. Um, one of these is the Maryland Fluted Point Survey. The other is the New York Paleo-Indian Database uh, Project. These are projects that avocationals report back, especially from farmers' fields, about Paleo-Indian artifacts they maybe have found. Yep. And it's this great project in each case run by uh by government archaeologists john lothrop in new york zach singer in maryland who's the state archaeologist in maryland john lothrop's the um new york state museum archaeologist and they go out when one of these artifacts is reported and they go out with a high resolution gps and work with the avocational archaeologist to record the location the avocational archaeologist has access to those data and it's they're just in my to my mind they're really fantastic ways to include the educational community as um, as peers in this this research. And as a result, these two states have got really good uh, management of that time period and are getting really great resolution on that time period. Yeah. Um, and, and if you look at, if you scale a little bit further, there's PIDBA, which is the Paleo-Indian Database of the Americas, which, so like, it's funny because, you know, we talked about Paleo-Indian research kind of being this obsession, right? It's also one of the very few kind of big data enterprises in, in North American archaeology. archaeology. And so um, PIDBA, which I, I'm, I'm at a loss to remember who um, who's the spearhead behind this. I um, can't. Uh, is it Meltzer? It's, it sounds like a Meltzer. Oh, it's David right? Anderson, uh, Anderson, University of okay. Tennessee. Yeah. Yep. So he's a fairly famous Southeast archaeologist, um, a, a true geoarchaeologist in every sense of the word. Um, but uh, basically, PIDBA aggregates Paleo-Indian data from across the continent, in particular has like tracked, like you can pull up this great map that they have of um, fluted points across North America 13,000 years ago or whatever, right? Um, and, and a testament to the work that's going on in Eastern North America and in places like Maryland and New York is the 
incredibly dense clustering of fluted points in eastern North America, which has has prompted people as early as the 50s to speculate that, you know, Clovis maybe has this eastern origin as opposed to uh, uh, origins in the west. Uh, but, but you know, I think when you look at this, it's, it's maybe a function more of like, a, a, there's a lot more people and a lot more um, sort of densely occupied landscapes in the eastern part of the continent. But it is it is fascinating to see um, uh, how, you know, how, how it maps out on a continental scale. Um, it, we're kind of scaling up thinking about, you know, the scale of Clovis, for example, at a, uh, when you're looking at, you can see a little dots of Debert up in the northeast uh, tip of this, and, and uh, then you see these clusters all around the rest of the continent. So pretty yeah. neat. Looking at a uh, half-finished bottle of Corvassier, Ken, and are we on to hit pieces? I think we are. Yeah. Um, well, uh, and and we should we should also say so. We invite the listener to email in if they have helpful suggestions on on quality control on this podcast. We are we are happy to uh, to respond to the listener. Yeah, and happy to, to have li- listener mail. You might even win the uh uh the evening on the merrimack just by becoming our first uh listener mail it's true you could you could be having a, a an ice dunkin donuts in 15 degrees <laughs> centigrade weather while we overlook a bridge above it. um but the uh the hit piece i've got this uh this week is the main archaeology newsletter and that is the newsletter of the main archaeological society and um the main art society is probably one of the best bargains in memberships that you could possibly have if you're interested in New Brunswick archaeology. That may sound counterintuitive, but it's nearby. They do um, uh, presentations twice a year, and uh, sometimes actually in collaboration with the Association of Professional Archaeologists in New Brunswick. Uh, membership is extremely inexpensive. I can't remember how inexpensive it is off the top of my head. It's something like ten dollars for a student. Um, yeah, American it's, and it's dollars. Not much, it's not much more for professionals either. No, it really isn't. And a very professionally done journal. I uh, really can't recommend it enough. They also have a publication series. Um, I'm showing. I'm showing actually the cover of this, and then I realized uh, after I was doing that that we don't actually show our listeners the video of these podcasts. So no, not um, yet. We might not someday. yet. Yeah, we, we record these for posterity. We do, we do. Um, and but I wanted to draw the in, in addition to the bulletin, which is the journal that they do, they do a newsletter. And there's an interesting uh section of the newsletter called The Odd Artifact with Dr. Arthur Spies. Uh Art's the state archaeologist in Maine. Um just one of these kind of model old guard uh New England state archaeologists, super high productivity super engaged with the discipline. Um, and uh, as we mentioned, I think earlier, uh, a very important Pedro Indian researcher. Yep. Um, but uh, this is an interesting article about, uh, or it's interesting blurb really, about uh, incised pebbles from a site at the Waterville Winslow Bridge. And uh, in reboxing these uh, artifacts from a previous project, I came across this and thought it was worthy of a blurb. There's some analogs to these actually in New Brunswick at the Holtz Point site in coastal uh, coastal New Brunswick. 
And you and so, Arthur, uh, you and Arthur Anderson were looking into these not too long ago, right? We we were looking at the region, and so there's we photograph them. Um, but yeah, they're super cool. They're they're these incised incised pebbles. And then the other uh, article in here to check out is Sarah Loftus at the Northeast Archaeological Research Center in Farmington uh, has written uh, a short piece on construction monitoring in downtown Portland, Maine. Very cool. uh, with yeah, and it's even got the obligatory uh, every every archaeological monitoring project involves finding one creepy looking doll and or figurine, and this this has a, <laughs> a one not far off the mark. Yeah, yeah, no, this one's called Frozen Charlotte, and so uh, so I encourage the listener to check out this the uh, the most recent newsletter of the main uh, Arc Society. That's excellent, um, and I think the only the only hit piece I have to highlight is that uh, uh, for those of you in New Brunswick who are interested in archaeology and are interested in taking in a, a full weekend of archaeology uh, and experience, uh, member two First Nation is going to be co-hosting the uh, Canadian Archaeological Association annual meeting this year. Um, uh, this will be hosted in Member 2, Nova Scotia. So um, uh, Member 2 First Nation is sort of embedded within the municipal limits of Sydney, Nova Scotia. Uh, that conference runs from May 3rd to 7th. Uh, you can find out inform more information about the conference itself on canadianarchaeology.com slash CAA slash annual dash meeting. Um, and uh, there's information in there about uh, if you have a paper you want, might want to submit, um, a session you might want to host, uh, or if you are just a member of the public looking to attend for a day or two, uh, it looks like they have uh, daily rates starting at um, as little as uh, $50 for students um, or um, non-archaeologists um, uh, as low as $15 or less uh, dollars. Um, so uh, come join us in member two. Uh, Gabe and I will be there. We might even be hosting a, our first live podcast. Would that be? I uh... I, I think we were going to try to do um, some kind of uh, live uh, sewed yep. from member two. I'm, the, not, uh... I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that terminology. <laughs> it for, makes uh... me a little uncomfortable as well. Um, but and and actually, since you mentioned the live podcast, we should say we're also um, we're going to start trying to plug in some special apps, uh, perhaps to fill in the in between. So we've got some. Uh, some ideas for that yeah and and what you might find in this episode is uh by the time we do all the editing you might get a first glimpse at this this week and you might get the part two next week because we're we're clocking it at close to two hours tonight and and uh i'm not sure if uh i'm not sure if the listeners are ready for that yet so well the uh i i feel like this uh my my partner in uh when she was in uh, medical school would listen to sometimes the they had recordings of the lectures and there were apparently some lectures that just sounded a little better at 1.5 speed that might be us <laughs> so. that's how i listen when i'm editing actually I oh fantastic try to yeah. fast forward to the parts where i know we need to we need to clip yeah well speaking of clipping ken i think we're at a half uh half finished bottle of corvassier and i think we should uh Say goodbye to the listener until our next uh, fortnight has passed. Yeah. And so thank you all for listening again. Um, obviously, uh, subscribe or follow us uh, on whichever your favorite podcasting platform is. And uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from you, our first listener mail. We'll talk to you soon, listener. Outro. <laughs>